why Donald Trump is returning to Georgia. President Trump will be in Columbus, Georgia for the state convention of the Georgia Republican Party. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you missed our special live episode earlier this week, go back and listen to it. It was so much fun. We, we had dozens and dozens and dozens of questions. We tried to get to as many of them as we could in about 45 minutes, but we have so many more questions and we can't wait to do that format again. Patricia, it was a blast. Oh, it was wonderful. And I don't want to release any special privileged information, but we're going to try to do also live in-person events around the state coming up here. And we'll be sure to let our audience know about those because we know from all of our communications that we have a lot of listeners in Atlanta, but then also a lot around the state. So um, we're looking forward to getting out and seeing people IRL, not just in the ATL. We have big plans and the podcast kept coming up time and again, Patricia, as I went to my daughter's career day at her middle school earlier on Thursday morning. Uh, it's funny because most of, most of the sixth grade students had no idea what a newspaper was, but they kept on asking about the podcast. So it was really, it was really, really cool. I love it. Well, keep on, keep on building our audience, Greg, starting, starting in the sixth grade, maybe the fourth grade, and then right on up. Indoctrinate them early. <laughs> early and often. Well, coming up on today's episode, we're going to discuss Donald Trump's plan to address the Georgia Republican Convention. We'll also talk about why Governor Kemp is embarking on an economic development trip to Israel. The latest in the Georgia budget battle, where you answer questions from the listener mailbag. And finally, our who's up and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Let's start with some of the biggest news of the week. It's not completely surprising that Donald Trump is coming back to Georgia, but it's surprising how quickly he is coming back to Georgia, to me at least. He is set to speak at the Republican State Convention on June 10th. It's not only the Republicans' first event in Georgia since launching his comeback bid, but it also comes as Fulton County prosecutors near an expected decision on whether to charge Trump and his allies for their efforts to overturn his 2020 election defeat in Georgia. So, Patricia, it's going to be very, very closely watched. It's going to be a nationally watched event uh, because he's at the home of one of his biggest defeats, not just in the 2020 election, of course, but also in the 2022 midterms where all of his Trump-backed challengers to Republican incumbents went down in flames in the May primary. Yes, Donald Trump is essentially a heat-seeking missile when it comes to places where he will get attention, stir up controversy, and be somewhere doing something that people cannot take their eyes off of. And you can't do much better than the Georgia GOP convention because it has 
all of those elements for him, because here in Georgia, there are these ongoing investigations, looming indictments that we're expecting from Fonnie Willis. But at the same time, he's going to be in front of a pre-built, prefabricated, meaning the audience is already there, very large audience of people highly inclined to be thrilled to hear everything he has to say. So they don't need CNN to go out and find Trump supporters for them. The Georgia GOP is that audience, and it's lots of them. And the Georgia GOP has really made headlines recently because they have become so very pro-Trump, so pro-Trump to the point that, as you said, Governor Kemp's not going to the convention Very few other statewide leaders are going to the convention. And the people who are, are the ones who are still in really good graces with Donald Trump. So that's Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, um, former U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler, a number of party leaders who now have been elected because they are so supportive of Donald Trump. So uh, in terms of uh, grading this on a scale of um, or a grid of Donald Trump's goals of getting lots of attention and being in front of an audience that loves him, this is kind of an A-plus for him. Uh, You know what? I agree in terms of the the planning of this event, because the last Republican rally that Donald Trump held in Georgia, uh, way back in, uh, I think it was March of last year, there was a lot of coverage, um, uh, especially on social media, about the lack of um, enthusiasm from the audience and the smaller-than-expected crowd size I was getting attacked on social media at the time uh, for tweeting estimates that that law enforcement officials were giving me at the time. You know, this was not 30,000 people or this huge crowd. It was a much smaller crowd than usual. Still thousands of people, but it wasn't, you know, uh, it was not Donald Trump at his peak in terms of uh, gathering huge crowds around him. This assures him it's not going to be an enormous crowd. There's only about 1,000 to 2,000 people who will be at this, um, this Republican event. But it's going to be a very enthusiastic crowd. These are a lot of the, the, a lot of these delegates had to get elected to just be in that room. So they had to fight just to get in the room. And a lot of them are the folks who knock on doors and make phone calls, donate money, and, and they're 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 the backbone of the Republican Party of Georgia. They're the doers, right? They're the people who get out there. And as you mentioned, and you know, it strikes me, Patricia, this is Trump's event at the Georgia Republican Convention just is sort of a microcosm of where Republicans are nationally right now. Um, Because you've got this hardened activist base that is still very pro-Trump. I know there's divisions within the state GOP, the the party itself over Trump, but there are many MAGA elements within the Republican Party of Georgia. And then there are those like Governor Kemp, Attorney General Chris Carr, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, others who are skipping the event. And they're part of the party leaders who are saying, we need to steer away from Donald Trump. We need to look at a vision of the Republican Party for the future, not the past. They're not echoing lies about election fraud. They're not obsessed with Donald Trump's defeat. And I think we're going to see at least some of that. We'll, we'll see, but I can anticipate resolutions that might be brought about election fraud and, and the like, certainly to play into Donald Trump's uh, favor. And so we do have this, this split personality the state party that really reflects what we're seeing nationally over Donald Trump. Yeah, something I'll be very interested to see is what kind of coverage does Trump get? I would expect it's more than your typical Trump rally because interest in that among the media 
um, has fallen. It's not as, you know, it's not as unique as it used to be. Um, However, because he's coming to Georgia, because these indictments are looming, I think it will get a lot of press attention. And then um, in the wake of uh, Trump's town hall with CNN, there's been a ton of media hand-wringing about What's the right way to cover him? Do you cover him at all? I say yes. Do you go live? How exactly um, is the right way to be paying attention to him, but also without paying too much attention to him? I heard a number of people say, what if CNN had given Ron DeSantis that same level of kind of a high profile primetime platform? What if DeSantis had had that? That could have even change the dynamics of that race. Um, this is a different situation, but I think there will be a, a lot of attention to how people are covering this. Does anyone take it live? Obviously, C-SPAN will take it live, but that's what they always do. And uh, how do people use this as a way to cover both the potential indictments against Trump, but then also the role that he's playing in the party, and um, particularly for us, the role he's playing inside the Republican Party and what that's doing to Republicans around the state because it's created this huge fissure among Republicans as a result of some people's loyalty to Trump, coupled with other people's refusal to go along with with what he's been saying. Our friend Shelley Winter over at WSB Radio had an interview with David Schaefer in which he was asked about this division in the Republican Party. Look, I've been involved in more than 30 years. There's always been divides within the Republican Party. And they're almost always, the divides are almost always caused by our growing. You know, I remember in the late 1980s when the Pat Robertson people joined the uh, uh, Georgia Republican Party, there was tension around that. And and when the Ron Paul people, the libertarian-leaning people joined the Republican Party, there was tension around that. And the Trump people, there was tension around that. But growth is good. And uh, these these disagreements and, and tensions are just a part of growing. So Patricia David Schaefer is just kind of writing this off as typical uh, growing pains, but, you know, it, it is more than that. It certainly seems like more than that from all the comments we're hearing from the governor himself. It is what it is. Uh, but at the same time, Republicans are going to try to bridge this divide because they know that Georgia is a must win for the GOP. That's how Brian Kemp calls it. That's how other Republican officials say Democrats can afford to lose Georgia and still win the presidential race. But Republicans worry that if Georgia goes in the blue column, that it means other states that they should win in order to win the presidency have also gone to the blue column. That is the importance of Georgia heading into 2024. 100 percent accurate. Also, listen, most Republicans don't see these as growing pains. They are afraid these are shrinking pains. Like this is what a party does before it cracks up <laughs> and loses its hold on power. Um, that's the real fear here. They are worried that Donald Trump is creating divisions where there really were not that many before. These are not fights about policy, except particularly for election <laughs> election changes and election law. And do you stand by it or do you not? But that was all completely personality driven by Donald Trump. Um, this is a party that would otherwise be kind of just rolling this state still. They have all the statewide positions. They still maintain the General Assembly, uh, both chambers. Members will tell you they really feel like the seats that they lost in 2020 were because of Donald Trump, and so as well as 2018. So are they growing pains? No. Are they shrinking pains? They're really hoping that that's not the case. Well, meanwhile, Patricia, 
Even as Donald Trump gears up and ratchets up his reelection or his comeback bit, I should say, uh, Governor Brian Kemp is cutting this interesting figure in the national Republican scene. As we reported over the last couple of weeks, he's almost assuredly not going to run for president. Um, there's only a very, very small chance he does, but he's keeping his options open. And one thing that's gaining a lot of attention is a trip he's taking uh, beginning this weekend to Israel for a week-long or so economic development trip where he's going to be meeting with Israeli leaders. He'll be going to the glittering skyscrapers of Tel Aviv, the holiest sites in Jerusalem, the desert tech hub of Beersheba. Uh, he'll be going all over the north of the country as well, meeting with Georgia businesses, meeting with foreign officials. And it's coming at a really fraught time in Israel, not just because of the on and off conflict in the West Bank and particularly in Gaza, where there was just a ceasefire after five days of violence between Gaza militants and Israeli, uh, is in the Israeli military, but also domestic turbulence in Israel, protest over a judicial overhaul that have brought tens of thousands of people to the streets of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and, and, and everywhere beyond, and a, a strike over a tax policy that has shut down parts of the country. So it's a very interesting time to have a trip, but hey, there's never... You know, there's always something going on in Israel, and security officials do an unbelievably uh, good job of, of of keeping dignitaries who are visiting very safe. Um, but this is a chance, strikes me as a chance for Governor Kemp to to sharpen his profile. And, you know, he's not going to, if he was to be a VP contender or another, he's not going to be the foreign policy expert, but at least a trip like this can show that he has, you know, gotten some experience on the world stage, even if it's even if it's not a, a major part of his resume. Yeah, so this trip to Israel, I think, is so fascinating because I think it's really proof that Governor Kemp is not running for president. If he was running for president, I had an Iowa activist tell me this week, then he ought to be going to Iowa, not Israel. I mean, this is the time to be on the ground in these early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, going to the fairs, shaking the hands, flipping the pork burgers, um, putting on your apron, doing all the things, eating your fried things on a stick. Like that's how you run for president right now. If you're really running, hiring staff, getting your operations in place. None of that is happening with Governor Kemp. However, however, in order to position himself for vice president, he's doing all the things that a person needs to do in that case. And that is really just to keep your options open. He has this really significant win in Georgia in 2022 that was noticed nationally, as anyone would expect, having been sort of this huge foil for Trump and then just to demolish all of Trump's uh, candidates, including David Perdue, um, by 50 points. And then you beat Stacey Abrams, who was the very best Democrats ever could have hoped for, um, to beat her in a rematch by more than seven points. You know, that got a ton of attention. But what I hear from national strategists, other people on other campaigns, Kemp does not have the kind of foreign policy experience that they want to see in a VP candidate um, so far, just to be able to talk about these issues in a way that you need to on a stage. Now, that can be addressed pretty quickly by going on trips, meeting these leaders, seeing it firsthand, and um, getting on-the-ground experience with foreign policy issues. He's, As you said, he's not going to be 
a foreign policy expert. And that's not why you pick a governor of a state to be a vice presidential nominee. Um, but uh, any VP hopeful needs to be um, conversant in the topics, know uh, very well what the dynamics are around the globe, and really have done enough traveling to be aware of exactly who the leaders are and have a feel for them, not just kind of memorize their names out of a phone book. That was Sarah Palin's problem. She was sort of just memorizing a bunch of names and just didn't know what she was talking about as a VP candidate. That was a catastrophe. Um, Somebody like Kemp, he can get up to speed on this stuff, but he needs to be doing the work right now. And um, this is a way to get that done as well as do a trade mission at the same time and, uh, you know, kind of use it as a, as a chance to get to two birds with one stone. Yeah, and a quick note on that, too, is, look, you know, I, I appreciate what that Iowa activist said, but where did Trump's biggest rival go, <laughs> you know, not not too long ago, Ron DeSantis? He went to Israel. He went on a, a, a series of global stops, uh, including United Kingdom and, and South Korea and Japan, but he also signed legislation to crack down on hate crimes after a big speech in Israel. And so that was, again, you know, it was very transparent. That was, that was that for him, at least for DeSantis, that was a trip to burnish his foreign policy chops before running for president. Um, this in governor Kemp's case, this was a trip they've been talking about since his first term as governor. Um, it just happens to coincide with more, uh, with more talk and with traction potentially for, uh, for governor Kemp being involved in the, in national politics in the 2024 mix writ large. But again, we are <laughs> we are not trying to uh, insinuate or suggest that we think that Governor Kemp will run for president because I don't. Um, I just think he is keeping his options open just in case. And as we've said before, he could end up becoming a emergency break the glass sort of candidate in case other rivals to Trump completely collapse. But we don't see a sign of that yet. Um, even in Georgia's latest poll of Georgia uh, Republican voters, from landmark communications, Trump's at 40%, Ron DeSantis at 32%. Um, so, so even before a campaign has been formally launched, Ron DeSantis is still within striking distance of Donald Trump. We have no idea how this will all shape up. And Governor Kemp in that same poll is about 7%. Um, but I, I think I would, I would venture to guess that some of those voters at least had not even thought of Kemp as a, as a presidential contender. So, so we'll see. Still to come, we're going to talk a little bit more about why Brian Kemp's budget cuts shocked some Georgia lawmakers. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're not only the host of this podcast, but we're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, for just 99 cents. This offer, by the way, ends on Monday, May 22nd. So you've only got a few more days to go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, we've got, uh, this is a story that our colleague at AJC, James Salzer, delved deeper into because we've been hearing a lot of concern from lawmakers about uh, not just Governor Kemp's vetoes, because he vetoed um, more than a dozen measures, uh, and some were surprises, but also embedded in his budget plan were about $200 million in spending that the governor put on hold. There was 33 pages of budget vetoes and what are known as budget disregards. Basically, the governor was directing agencies to ignore about 130 budget line items many that were near and dear uh, to Georgia lawmakers. Let, let me give you a few examples. Lawmakers passed a budget that included $26 million for retiree raises, about $6 million for free meals for school children, about $6 million for bonuses for school custodians. Uh, these and other items were affected by this disregard motion. But what do you think about this? Do, do you, I, I kind of see it as, as the governor's uh, I know they know economic storm clouds are brewing, so it was one way to sort of, um, I don't know, rein in spending, but it's one way to better control spending. But also, it could be also just basically a power play of the governor reasserting his authority over the over the budget in a constant tug of war with Georgia lawmakers over budget priorities. Yeah, I think I don't know exactly what to make of it. Neither do most lawmakers. And that's unusual because we're talking about Republican lawmakers who are Governor Kemp's and have been Governor Kemp's allies during his campaigns, during his efforts to move really important legislation to him through both chambers. And uh, when you go into some of these specific cuts and redirects, as they're called, it really does affect projects and spending and um, kind of individualized efforts in the districts of the most powerful Republicans. So House Speaker John Burns, Appropriations Committee Chairman um, Blake Tillery on the Senate side, Appropriations Committee Chairman Matt Hatchett on the House side. Um, There was no effort made to spare uh, very important leaders, they're um, kind of the projects that were nearest and dearest to them, as you said, especially for Matt Hatchett. He had a, a very small item in there that he had uh, said publicly was the thing he was proudest of, and that was getting $1,000 bonuses for school janitors and custodians. They were not included, of course, in those teacher pay raises. Um, What made this all very unusual, and listen, everyone gets a haircut. Everyone understands that. Um, I think what has us looking at this more closely are two things. First of all, 
Um, the governor's office is talking quite a bit about their concerns about sort of trouble on the horizon with the state budget. There may be lean times ahead. The, but in this year in particular, the governor also, with the significant help of those lawmakers I just mentioned, passed almost $2 billion in tax cuts. Um, that's a lot of That is 10 times the amount of the cuts that we just saw and cuts, you know, cuts and redirects. So and some of those are not cuts. They are just sort of holding onto that money and telling lawmakers, telling uh, agencies, don't spend it the way you've been told. So it doesn't actually save money, but it also is not um, kind of creating ongoing obligations. So uh, it, it's been a, a, a fat budget year. And to see these cuts is a surprise. The other piece that was a surprise is just how lawmakers found out about it. Nobody got a heads up. Many of them were with the governor for this very photogenic bill signing in a huge dirt field in Ellabel where a Hyundai plant is coming in. And that was meant to signify sort of the support of state dollars to uh, woo all of these major mega developments. And that's, again, something that lawmakers helped the governor with. Two hours later, they all found out that a lot of their pet projects had been stalled or chopped out of the budget. And so... It is, we don't know what to make of it. Lawmakers don't know what to make of it. I've spoken with some who said this was like a huge gut punch. Others said, wow, that's not the way I would have done it. And by the way, I wanted to, I would have known, wanted to know sooner. But these disagreements happen and we'll continue to work together. But it doesn't feel great. You know, it's it's sort of on a scale. Uh, but overall, there is, I think, confusion about why they didn't hear about it sooner when they would have liked to have. Yeah, I was in the airport f- about to fly back from New York on Friday afternoon when I started getting the calls where people were basically saying, what the hell? And that is a mild way of saying some of the reaction <laughs> I was hearing from lawmakers who, as you said, were, were, were flabbergasted, were caught off guard. One thing I'm watching going forward is how lawmakers look to respond to this next year. Uh, next time they're in the General Assembly, uh, do they make an attempt to rein in the governor's fiscal powers? Do they try to push some of these these priorities through again? Um, Do they uh, try to seek retribution in other ways by maybe voting against some of the governor's priorities, even if they are, uh, you know, even if they're bipartisan consensus-worthy type priorities? Uh, That remains to be seen, but I know know conversations are already happening among lawmakers about how to respond. So we we will keep you posted on all of that. Okay, now it is time for our listener mailbag. You can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That is 770-810-5297. Producer Shaney B is standing by. Standing by with some questions that we didn't even have time to answer on Wednesday's episode. I love it that we had so many questions. <laughs> we had tons. Uh, a lot of them we echoed each other, but we had so many great questions. We'll have questions for weeks now, Shani B. <laughs> we will. But, you know, there are some things that are just top of mind for voters all across the state of Georgia. And, of course, all eyes are on 2024. Joseph Kelly asks, how will the excitement factor determine the level of voter turnout? Yeah, uh, Joseph, this is such a good question because it's something that political scientists always try, try to analyze is 
you know, there's turnout, but how does enthusiasm factor in? Do the big crowds at Donald Trump rallies of 2020, of 2016, whatever, do they really matter? Do they, are they a good indication of enthusiasm? Because, look, enthusiasm does, to me at least, it does matter. Because if you're super excited about one of your candidates, you're more likely to tell your friends and your neighbors or put a yard sign up or give money or do other things that help get him or her elected. But at the same time, a lot of this, and especially when you look at President Biden's campaign, a lot of it is, hey, I'm trusted, but the other guys are extreme. You know, a lot of it's kind of pointing at, you know, that Democrats are clearly trying to unify uh, not just their base core supporters, but also independents, moderates, centrists, disaffected Republicans, you name it, um, who are worried about Donald Trump or who might be worried about Ron DeSantis, whoever. They're trying to unite them um, to vote for Democrats uh, because they, you know, out of fear of the other guys. And clearly Republicans are also doing the same thing, you know, uh, warning about Joe Biden's policy agenda and inflation and, uh, you know, you name it. So I think enthusiasm uh, and excitement, of course, have factor into it. But really, you know, really when it comes down to it, it'll be hard to imagine voters um, who, who who still have lingering. It'll be hard to imagine too many undecided voters when, when it's all said and done. And the voters who end up not voting are, are doing so because they're making a very, very uh, concrete choice not to vote. I totally agree. Enthusiasm is the it's the whole game. You're not going to go vote if you don't care. So these parties know they have to get people not just paying attention, but also motivated. And that can look like good excitement, like, oh, yay, I'm excited. So excited to vote for this person. It can also be sort of negative excitedness, meaning, oh, no, I'm afraid of this person. He can't do the job. I don't want him doing the job. I worry for the country. I worry for democracy. And frankly, fear is a much stronger motivating factor than happy excitement. Um, And that's why we see all those negative ads. That's why we see people, um, candidates, pushing out all kinds of negative, scary, sort of catastrophic messages is to get people to, frankly, be afraid because they know that people act to protect themselves and their families when they're afraid. Voting is one of the easiest ways to do that. And so um, enthusiasm is the entire game. And what that what exactly that looks like and whether it works is uh, how we're going to know who won the election. Shady B, what else we got? We have a question from Charles Madry. What effect, if any, will DeSantis have on the 2024 election? He's going to have a huge effect. I mean, he's already, uh, I think he's largely at this moment um, perceived as the strongest uh, challenger to Donald Trump right now. He is um, certainly the one who's gotten under Trump's skin the most. He is the governor of the state where Trump lives. He has raised the most money. He has the highest profile. He has spent um, the last many months Uh, passing legislation through the Florida Assembly to strengthen his candidacy. Unlike Brian Kemp, he has an operation on the ground already in Iowa. He's hired his state director. He's got people out there. He's traveling to Iowa in these early states. Um, He was just out in Iowa this weekend. I've always been skeptical that a man who eats pudding with his fingers can really be the president, but uh, we're going to have to see. I mean, Donald Trump is going to really dig in and and work to fillet Ron DeSantis. You can tell 
that is the one he's most worried about right now. Um, so we'll have to see. But the fact that DeSantis has so clearly got Donald Trump rattled means that he's definitely the candidate to watch. Yeah, I agree, Patricia. He's going to have a huge impact on this race. He's going to get in the race within days. Um, national outlets have reported he is basically just about to sign paperwork to formally launch his campaign. That'll enable him to start raising a lot more money. Um, he's been on this book tour that also came to Georgia a few weeks ago. And the book is actually selling really well. <laughs> so that's a good sign, too, if you're a Ron DeSantis supporter. And, you know, as you mentioned, the polls still show Donald Trump in strong in, in strong position, but DeSantis is within striking distance in a lot of these polls. His numbers took a dip a few weeks ago. They've kind of revived, at least in, in, in many public polls. And this is before he's even entered the race. And as you said, the biggest factor is often what the candidates themselves are doing. And when Donald Trump was attacking Ron DeSantis long before he got in the race, calling him names, the sanctimonious, whatever, that is your best sign that he sees DeSantis as his biggest threat. And, you know, it hasn't let up at all. There's like two or three email broadsides on Ron DeSantis, even just uh, just on Thursday. Now it's time for our last segment. Who's up? Who's down? Trisha, we always like to end on a high note. So who is your who's down for the week? My who's down for the week is former... Fulton County Commissioner Lee Morris, without having to go too far into the weeds, uh, Morris had been nominated by the Democratic chair of the Fulton County Commission to lead the Fulton County Elections Board. The problem for other Democrats is that that would have changed control, technically, of the Fulton County Elections Board from majority Democrat to majority Republican. That set off this flurry of opposition against Lee Morris, literally having nothing to do with Lee Morris personally, just because of his party identification. Um, Both of Georgia's senators, Ossoff and Warnock, called to make sure that he was not ultimately appointed. A whole slew of Democratic lawmakers wrote a letter to say you can't nominate this guy. People I've spoken with about Lee Morris think he is wonderful, not an election denier, would not have gone along with the other two Republicans on that panel who've been nominated but not quite confirmed yet. So um, he seems to have just gotten completely swept up in this partisan just battle over the future of that elections board. It will be the first of many fights over elections boards all around the state. Um, But Lee Morris is definitely my who's down for this week. And an enduring mystery is why exactly the Democratic chair of Fulton County tapped a Republican um, to that position. So that is a question that we will continue to seek answers for. My who's down for the week, though, is on a different topic. I would have to say, and, and James Salzer's story kind of put this to light, but it's befuddled lawmakers who, who don't know why some of their biggest priorities were either nixed by Governor Kemp in the budget or, you know, disregarded, I guess is the, the formal term. Um, you know, several of them went on the record for his great story. We've heard from many, many others um, who have told us privately how frustrated, how, how upset they were um, by that budget document. You know, it, it, this has been festering for a while, but James's story kind of put a put a put a pin on it and helped elevate it. Those frustrated lawmakers are my who's down for the week. Patricia, who is your who's up for the week? My who's up for the week. This is a first, and it will probably be a last. David Schaefer, the chairman of the Georgia GOP, yep. is my who's up for the week. 
He has scored a coup on the way out the door. He's not going to be the chairman of that party for much longer, largely because the party has sort of shrunk to irrelevance and um, infighting and um, questionable ethics and a whole host of problems. However, to get Donald Trump to come speak at the Georgia GOP convention um, in, in the teeth of a potential indictment. I mean, that's going to be must-see TV. It makes the event humongously relevant. It reinforces the fact that that party is, the party apparatus itself is largely united behind Donald Trump. Not completely, but they sure like him. And so the response in that room will reinforce that and sort of reinforce Schaefer's entire approach to his role as, um, you know, supporting Trump whenever possible. So he's my who's up for the week. You know, great minds, I guess, because he was going to be my who's up for the week as well. I mean, this you're right. This is a big moment for David Schaefer. The party itself is at, at risk of being completely sidelined, relegated as an afterthought. Governor Kemp is working on moving forward with his parallel organization. Statewide Republican elected officials are, are, are basically boycotting the event. A number of mainstream folks are saying, you know what, I don't want anything to do with the state party. And yet, it still is a citadel, a fortress, a, um, a, uh, a bastion for some of the most conservative activists in Georgia. And that makes a lot of sense for, for Donald Trump to go there. And so David Schaefer uh, helped bring more relevance uh, to the state party by getting Donald Trump's okay to attend the state convention. So for that, he is also my Who's Up for the Week. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving arts scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.